Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody come back, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked room today, didn't you? How do the dead come back, Mother? What's the secret? Boomerang by Oscar Cook Warwick threw himself into a chair beside me, hitched up his trousers and, leaning across, tapped me on the knee. You remember that story about mending in which you told me, he asked. I nodded. I wasn't likely to forget that affair. Well, he went on, I've got as good a one to tell you. I had it straight from the filly's mouth, so to speak, and it's red hot. I edged away in my chair, for there was something positively ghoulish in his delight, in the coarse way in which he referred to a woman, and one who, if my inference were correct, must have known tragedy. But there's no stopping Warwick. He knows or admits no finer feelings or shame when his thirst for copy is aroused. Like the little boy in the well-known picture, he won't be happy till he's quenched it. I ordered drinks, and when they had been served and we were alone, bade him to get on with his sordid story. It's a wild tale, he began, of two planter fellows in the interior of Borneo, and as usual, there's a woman. The woman? I couldn't refrain from asking, thinking of his earlier remark. The same, he replied, a veritable golden-haired filly, only her mane is streaked with grey, and there's a great livid scar or wheel right around her neck. She's the wife of Leopold Thring. The other end of the triangle is Clifford Macy. And where do you come in, I inquired. Warwick closed one eye and pursed his lips. As a spinner of yarns, he answered sententiously, then, with a return to his usual cynicism, the filly's down and out. But for some silly religious scruples, feels she must live. I bought the story, therefore, after verifying the facts. Shall I go on? I nodded, for I must admit I was genuinely interested. The eternal triangle always intrigues. Set in the wilds of Borneo, it promised a variation of incident unusually refreshing in these sophisticated days. Besides, that scar was eloquent. Warwick chuckled. The two men were partners, he went on, on a small experimental estate far up in the interior. They had been at it for about six years and were just about to reap the fruits of their labours very handsomely. Incidentally, Macy had been out in the colony the full six years, and the strain was beginning to tell. Thring had been home eighteen months before, and on coming back had brought his bride, Rona. That was the beginning of the trouble. It split up the partnership, brought in a new element, meant the building of a new bungalow. For Macy, I asked, yes, and he didn't take kindly to it. He'd got set. And then there was the loneliness of night after night alone, while the others, you understand. I nodded. Well, Warwick continued, the expected happened. Macy flirted, philandered, and then fell violently in love. He was one of those fellows who never do things by halves. If he drank, he'd get fighting drunk. If he loved, he went all out on it. If he hated, well, hell was let loose. And Mrs. Thring, I queried, for it seemed to me that she might have a point of view. Fell between two stools, as so many women of a certain type do. She began by being just friendly and kind, you know the sort of thing, cheering the lonely man up, drifted into woman's eternal game of flirting, and then began to grow a little afraid of the fire she'd kindled. Too late, she realised that she couldn't put the fire out, either hers or Macy's, and all the while she clung to some hereditary religious scruples. Thring was in many ways easygoing, but at the same time possessed of a curiously intense strain of jealous possessiveness. He was generous too. If asked, he would share or give away his last shirt or crust. 
but let him think or feel that his rights or dues were being curtailed or taken, and, well, he was a tough customer of rather primitive ideas. Rona, that's the easiest way to think of the filly, soon found she was playing a game beyond her powers. Hers was no poker face, and Thring began to sense that something was wrong. She couldn't dissemble, and Macy made no attempt to hide his feelings. He didn't make it easy for her, and I guess from what the girl told me, life about this time was for her a sort of glorified hell, a suspicious husband on one hand and an impetuous devil-may-care lover on the other. She was living on a volcano, which might explode at any minute, I quietly nodded. Warwick nodded. Exactly. Or whenever Thring chose to spring the mine. He held the key to the whole situation, or should I say, the time fuse. The old story, but set in a primitive land full of possibilities, you got me? For answer, I offered Warwick a cigarette, and taking one myself, lighted both. So far, I said, with all your journalistic skill, you've not got off the beaten track. Can't you improve? He chuckled, blew a cloud of smoke, and once again tapped my knee in his irritating manner. Your cynicism, he counted, is but a poor cloak for your curiosity. In reality, you're jumping mad to know the end, eh? I made no reply, and he went on. Well, matters went on from day to day till Rona became worn to the proverbial shadow. Thring wanted to send her home, but she wouldn't go. She owed a duty to her husband. She couldn't bear to be parted from her lover, and she didn't dare leave the two men alone. She was terribly, horribly afraid. Macy grew more and more openly amorous and less restrained. Thring watched whenever possible with the cunning of an iguana. Then came a rainy damp spell that tried nerves to the uttermost, and the inevitable stupid little disagreements between Rona and Thring, mere trifles, but enough to let the lid off. He challenged her. And she? I couldn't help asking, for Warwick has, I must admit, the knack of keeping one on edge. Like a blithering but sublime little idiot, admitted that it was all true. For nearly a minute I was speechless. Somehow, although underneath I had expected Rona to behave so, it seemed such a senseless, unbelievable thing to do. Then at last I found my voice. And Thring, I said simply. Warwick emptied his glass at a gulp. That's the most curious thing in the whole yarn, he answered slowly. Thring took it quietly as a lamb. Stunned, I guessed. That's what Rona thought, what Macy believed when Rona told him what had happened. In reality, he must have been burning mad a mass of white-hot revenge controlled by a devilish cunning brain. He waited. A scene or a fight, and Macy was a big man, would have done no good. He would get his own back in his own time and in his own way. Meanwhile, there was a lull before the storm. Then, as so often happens, fate played a hand. Macy went sick with malaria, really ill, and even Thring had to admit the necessity for Rona to nurse him practically night and day. Macy owed his eventual recovery to her care, but even so, his convalescence was a long job. In the end, Rona too crocked up through overwork, and Thring had them both on his hands. This was an opportunity better than he could have planned. It separated the lovers and gave him complete control. Obviously, the time was ripe, ripe for Thring to score his revenge. The rains were over. The jungle had ceased wintering and spring was in the air. The young grass and vegetation was shooting into new life. Concurrently, all the creepy, crawly insect life of the jungle in the state was young and vigorous and hungry too. These facts gave Thring the germ of an idea which he was not slow to perfect. 
an idea as devilish as man could devise. Warwick paused to press out the stub of his cigarette, and noticing that even he seemed affected by his recital, I prepared myself as best I could for a really gruesome horror. All I said, however, was, Go on. It seems, he continued, that in Borneo there's a kind of a mammoth earwig, a thing almost as fine and gossamer as a spider's web, as long as a good-sized caterpillar that lives on waxy secretions. These are integral parts of some flowers and trees and lie buried deep in their recesses. It's one of the terrors of these particular tropics, for it moves and rests so lightly on a human being that one is practically unconscious of it, while, like its English relation, it has a decided liking for the human ear. On account of man's carnivorous diet, the wax in this has a strong and very succulent taste. As Warwick gave me those details, he sat upright on the edge of his easy chair. He spoke slowly, emphasising each point by hitting the palm of his left hand with the clenched fist of his right. It was impossible not to see the drift and inference of his remarks. You mean, I began, exactly, he broke in quickly, blowing a cloud of smoke from a fresh cigarette which he had nervously lighted. Exactly, it was a devilish idea to put the giant earwig on Macy's hair just above the ear. And then? I knew the fatuousness of the question but speech relieved the growing sense of ticklish horror that was creeping over me. Do nothing, but rely on the filthy insect running true to type. Once in Macy's ear, it was a thousand to one chance against it ever coming out the same way. It wouldn't be able to turn. To back out would be almost an impossibility, and so, feeding as it went, it would crawl right across inside his head with the result that the picture Warwick was drawing was more than I could bear. Even my imagination, dulled by years of legal dry-as-dust affairs, saw and sickened at the possibilities. I put out a hand and gripped Warwick's arms. Stop, man, I cried hoarsely. For God's sake, don't say any more. I understand. My God, but the man's ring must be a fiend. Warwick looked at me, and I saw that even his face had paled. Was, he said meaningly. Perhaps you're right. Perhaps he was a fiend. Yet, remember, Macy stole his wife. But a torture like that, the deliberate creation of a living torment that would grow into madness. Warwick, you can't condone that. He looked at me for a moment, and then slowly spread out his hands. Perhaps you're right, he admitted. It was a bit thick, I know, but there's more to come. I closed my eyes and wondered if I could think of an excuse for leaving Warwick. But in spite of my real horror, my curiosity won the day. Get on with it, I muttered and leant back, eyes still shut, hands clenched. With teeth gritted together, as if I myself were actually suffering the pain of that earwig slowly, daily, creeping farther into and eating my brain, I waited. Warwick wasn't slow to obey. I've told you, he said, that Rona had to nurse Macy, and even when he was better, though still weak, Thring insisted on her looking after him, though now he himself came more often. One afternoon, Rona was in Macy's bungalow, alone with him. The houseboy was out. Rona was on the veranda. Macy was asleep in the bedroom. Dusk was just falling. Bats were flying about. The flying foxes, heavy with fruit, were returning home. The inevitable house rats were scurrying about the floors. The lamps hadn't been lit. An eerie, devastating hour. Rona dropped some needlework and fought back tears. Then from the bedroom came a shriek. My head, my ear, oh God, my ear, oh God, the pain. That was the beginning. The earwig had got well inside. 
Rona rushed in and did all she could. Of course, there was nothing to see. Then, for a little while, Maisie would be quiet because the earwig was quiet, sleeping or gorged. Then the vile thing would move or feed again, and Maisie once more would shriek with the pain. And so it went on, day by day. Alternate quiet and alternate pain, each day for Maisie. For Rona, a hell of nerve-rending expectancy. Waiting, always waiting for the pain that crept slowly and crawled and twisted and writhed and moved ever so slowly through and across Macy's brain. Warwick paused so long that I was compelled to open my eyes. The face was ghastly. Fortunately, I couldn't see my own. And Thring, I asked, came often each day, pretended sorrow and served out spurious dope. Rona found the coloured water afterwards. He cleverly urged that Macy should be carried down to the coast for medical treatment, knowing full well that he was too ill and worn to bear the smallest strain. Then, when Macy was an utter wreck, broken, completely in mind and body with hollow hunted eyes, with ever-twitching fingers, with a body no part of which he could properly control or keep still, the earwig came out at the other ear. As it happened, both Thring and Rona were present, Macy must have suffered an excruciating pain, followed as usual by a period of quiescence, then, feeling a slight ticklish sensation on his cheek, put up his hand to rub or scratch. His fingers came in contact with the earwig and its fine gossamer hairs. Instinct did the rest, you follow. My tongue was still too dry to enable me to speak. Instead, I nodded, and Warwick went on. He naturally was curious and looked to see what he was holding. In an instant he realised even Rona couldn't be in doubt. The hairs were faintly but unmistakably covered here and there with blood, with wax and with grey matter. For a moment there was absolute silence between the three. At last Macy spoke. My God, he just whispered. Oh my God, what an escape. Rona burst into tears. Only Thring kept silent and that was his mistake. The silence worried Macy, weak though he was. He looked from Rona to Thring, and at the critical moment Thring couldn't meet his gaze. The truth was out. With an oath, Macy threw the insect, now dead from the pressure of his fingers, straight into Thring's face. Then he crumpled up in his chair and sobbed and sobbed till even the chair shook. Again, Warwick paused till I thought he would never go on. I'd heard enough, I'll admit, and yet it seemed to me that at least there should be an epilogue. Is that all? I tentatively asked. Warwick shook his head. Nearly, but not quite. Rona had ceased weeping and kept her eyes fixed on Thring. She dared not go and comfort Macy now. She saw him examine the dead earwig, having picked it up from the floor to which it had fallen, turn it this way and that, then produce from a pocket a magnifying glass, which he used daily for the inspection and detection of leaf disease on certain of the plants. As she watched, she saw the fear and disappointment leave his face, to be replaced by a look of cunning and evil satisfaction. Then, for the first time, he spoke. Macy called in a sharp, loud voice. Macy looked up. Thring held up the earwig. This is dead now, he said. Dead. As dead as my friendship for you, you swine of a thief. As dead as my love for that whore who was my wife. It's dead, I'll tell you, dead, but it's a female. You get me? A female. And a female lays eggs, and before it died it, he never finished. His baiting at last roused Macy, endowing him with the strength of madness and despair. With one spring, he was at Thring's throat, bearing him down to the ground. 
Over and over they rolled on the floor, struggling for possession of the great hunting knife stuck in Thring's belt. One moment Macy was on top, the next Thring. Their breath and oaths came in great trembling gasps. They kicked and bit and scratched, and all the while Rona watched, fascinated and terrified. Then Thring got definitely on top. He had one hand on Macy's throat, both knees on his chest, and with his free hand he was feeling for the knife. In that instant, Rona's religious scruples went by the board. She realised she only loved Macy, that her husband didn't count. She rushed to Macy's help. Thring saw her coming and let drive a blow at her head which almost stunned her. She fell on top of him just as he was whipping out the knife. The edge caught her neck. The sudden spurt of blood shot in Thring's eyes and blinded him. It was Macy's last chance. He knew it, and he took it. When Rona came back to consciousness, Thring was dead. Macy was standing beside the body, which was gradually swelling to huge proportions as he worked weakly but steadily at the white ant exterminator pump, the nozzle of which was pushed down the dead man's throat. Warwick ceased. This last had been a long unbroken recital, and mechanically he picked up his empty glass as if to drain it. The action brought me back to nearly normal. I rang for the waiter, the knob of the electric bell luckily being just over my head. While waiting, I had time to speak. I've heard enough, I said hurriedly, to last me a lifetime. You've made me feel positively sick. But there's just one point. What happened to Macy? Did he live? Warwick nodded. That's another strange fact. He still lives. He was tried for the murder of Thring, but there was no real evidence. On the other hand, his story was too tall to be believed, with the result, well, you can guess. A lunatic asylum? For life, I asked. Warwick nodded again. Then I followed his glance. A waiter was standing by my chair. Two double whiskey and sodas, I ordered tersely, and then, with shaking fingers, lighted a cigarette. That was Boomerang by Oscar Cook. First of all, I need to say that it was a request, this story, by Peter Denyer, who very kindly supported me by buying me uh, some coffees on um, Kofi. I've got this new uh, Aeropress, actually, because I like gadgets, and I saw this Aeropress, and I love it. I use the metal filter. I've tried the paper filter, but you get something more of the the coffee taste because more of the oils and grounds go through. Anyway, that's that. So that isn't totally what I did, but it is partly my growing love of coffee. Anyway, this story is really gruesome. The most gruesome, I think, that we've done. But first, I'll tell you something about Oscar Cook. So Richard Martin Oscar Cook, known as Oscar, was born in London in 1888. And he also died in London in 1952, but a different bit. He died in Kensington, was born in Islington. His father owned an athletic goods company and the the family were quite well off. He went to a private school and lived in Broxbourne, which is just in Hertfordshire, which is one of the home counties just outside London. Uh, His father, I said, owned an athletic goods company. His first job we know this, we know very little about him from himself. Um, although he did write an autobiography called Borneo, the Stealer of Hearts, which I haven't read, but I'm going to actually make a point of looking at now. His first job when he was quite a young man was as a clerk in Broxbourne. Uh, but then he went to Borneo, apparently to try, as many young men of the time did in the age of the British Empire, to make his fortune by going into to the colonies. And he ended up in British Borneo 
on a rubber plantation, but he somehow fell out with the owner of the rubber plantation, probably in his, this is all probably detailed in his autobiography. And uh, having lost the job, he ended up in the colonial service, working as an administrator for the, the you know, the, the colony really in, in Borneo. And he was there for eight years and then he came back to London, but he always had an ambition to be a writer. And his first book was his autobiography. He met his wife and she, she also was a writer, but she was involved in publishing. So Christine Campbell Thompson, and they got married in 1924. Uh, they sadly got divorced in, well, I say sadly, maybe they both thought it was a good idea to be divorced in 1938. After he'd written his autobiography, he wrote a lot of um, horror stories and with the money he made and potentially the money from his family, he bought a publishing house, which is a great idea for any writer. And I think I'm going to do it because then you can guarantee that your stuff gets published. You can still do that these days on Amazon, of course. And he wrote a lot of horror stories and these were anthologized. And the, the, the company that he owned, the publishing company produced a series of not at night and anthologies of horror stories. But later his his work gets appears in the Pan series of horror stories. And I remember reading Pan horror story book because there were quite a lot of them. And as I said, maybe it used to sit in the caravan when I was a kid and it was raining, as it often was in English summers, and uh, read these horror stories, which may explain why I'm talking to you today. So the story itself, he, he died. It's, we don't know very much about him in his later life, but he seems to be relatively happy. He died in London as we said. So there are certain mysteries about this story. First of all, why is it called boomerang? Because a boomerang, to my mind, is the wooden crooked stick that Australian Aborigines throw uh, and apparently it returns to you, although it actually doesn't. That's a myth. Uh, but, you know, it's a hunting. So it's not from Borneo, although Borneo isn't too far from Australia, I suppose, as the crow flies or whatever bird there might be down there, showing my ignorance. So, why is it called Boomerang? It's, there's not even a boomerang in it. But then it was filmed in the Night Gallery series, which was like the Twilight Zone. And it was a very popular episode of this Night Gallery series. Uh, and they called it the Caterpillar, which again is weird because it's, it's a, an earwig. It's not a caterpillar. And an earwig and a caterpillar aren't the same thing at all. So, anyway, why, why was the story called Boomerang? Why is the TV adaptation called The Caterpillar, okay? Other, other than that, the other two things to say about the story, it's fairly linear. It goes from A to B. It's a, it's a nice, simple structure. I like a bit of a simple structure. And it just unfolds. And I suppose there's some human interest in that. A lot of supernatural stories aren't really bothered with human realities. And but this is the famous triangle of two and one and thwarted passion and murder. So in a sense, it isn't, it isn't a supernatural story at all. It's just a horror story because it's horrible. And he gets the idea of putting this um, thing. And it's almost like he's, and I'm sure he did actually. He thought, right, what can I do that's really, really horrible? Okay, what do people not like? Well, earwigs. Who likes earwigs? Those horrible little crawly things. And the idea that they get in your ear, which I'm not sure is true either. I used to think that when I was a kid though. In fact, I used to think they were born in flowers, but that's another story. That's because I found some bindweed once it was full of earwigs. I thought, oh, this must be where they're from. I was very small at the time. I think I was only about four. Anyway, so horrible. Earwigs are horrible. They're like 
a lot of insects are horrible, but these, these are horrible, horrible ones. And so, yeah, that's horrible. Then they eat earwax. That's horrible. Earwax is horrible. And then they're going to go into you. Now, any idea, you, you go on YouTube and you see all the videos about parasitic worms and things burrow into people and parasitic wasps and all this. No, people are revolted by that. So he's just going for this horribleness in the ear. I mean, the eye or the mouth would have been bad, but the ear, something horrible about the ear going in, eating its way through your brain. Now, this is stretching credibility a little bit because I don't think if you put a bug in your ear, it would go in a straight line, straight through. I think if it was a, it would just stay in there probably, make a little nest and hole. But this one goes right through by a feat of fantastic navigation and pops out the other side covered in blood and wax and grey matter. So it's got really nasty stuff on it and it drops out. And then to push the horribleness, it's like, right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep upping the ante here. Not only all these things, aha, it's a female, so it'll have laid eggs. So the idea of having insectoid eggs inside you growing is fairly bad. So that's one thing. That's the horribleness. He's just gone, yeah, I'm gonna, what can I think of that's really unpleasant and I'm going to keep adding it. The next, the next bit to say is there's a whole genre of stories of sort of boys' adventure stories from that period of the early 20th century and possibly late 19th century of rough, tough men out in the wilds. And I guess you get it from the British Empire and also those stories of the American West as well. And, you know, Jack London stories and things like that about the rugged outback or um, men in hostile environments. And often, usually they end up fighting and they wrestle around and punch each other a lot. And they go for huge hunting knives. Uh, and uh, this is what happens here. At the end, where he pumps him up with a, an ant something, I don't know where that even came from. That just kind of appeared at the end. I'm like, where, 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 why did he suddenly blow his corpse up with a pump? Other than just being another really horrible thing, you know, to add in. And then, of course, the other striking feature is the casual misogyny and sexism of it, whereby, you know, Rona, poor old Rona, she's an idiot, she's a whore, and she is stolen. The other guy, you, th- you th- thief. So, you know, clearly Rona is perceived as property. The narrator, to be fair to him, insists that Rona must have a point of view, as if that's a, like a striking idea, as I guess it would be. I wonder if, you know, Rona is stolen by Macy. Could she steal Macy or... Is it that women couldn't actually own property or something? I don't know. So these are features of the times. We, get, we don't, in this one, get any casual racism. That we mentioned the houseboy, I suppose, but it, there, it isn't delved into or glorified. But th- this, is, this is commonplace, isn't it? The only thing I was going to say was that when I was a young man, very young man, I had a girlfriend whose mother... In, they lived in Surrey at the time, just outside London. And her mother had been brought up on a tea plantation. No, no, it wasn't. It was a rubber plantation. I, I forget now. Either rubber or tea plantation in Ceylon, which is now Sri Lanka. And it, that was the end of those periods, you know, and it wasn't anything that I'd had a, any uh, dealings with the, this kind of imperial thing. But it, it was interesting to look into the lives of these people who had gone out and had returned, in fact, as uh, Cook did as well. So again, a lot of these stories are very, there's no morality in this, I don't think. Uh, like in lots of ghost stories, there's morality. This is just like horribleness, really. But they usually do offer a snapshot into their time period. So that, I think that's, that's interesting. Okay. 
that's that. So next week, something else. I think I've got it down in my show. I've been, I've got other things that's been taking over my life. I'm really interested in the app Notion. I've been following a guy called August Bradley on YouTube. So you look up August because August is going to change your life with, with Notion. He's going to make you into a productivity machine. So I know now what my next stories are. It's incredible. And I've got other projects. I'm doing a London, uh, London horror story book at the moment. Amazon, ACX rather, rejecting a lot of my stuff. So that's frustrating. But anyway, so with August Bradley, recommend you look. I get no commission, I should say. But uh, it's phenomenal, really. I've, I've really enjoyed his stuff. So I now know that my next story is going to be the Mezzo Tint by M.R. James. It'll be the third M.R. James story we've done. And I'm, I feel ashamed because ha- there are other writers that we haven't covered and we will get to, but I think it's about time for an M.R. James. So there we are. Okay. I hope you enjoyed it. It's different, the boomerang. I'll speak to you again soon. And this week's call to action is to thank my supporters on Patreon. So a big thank you to all my Patreon supporters. These ongoing pledges help me continue to produce the podcast, paying as they do for hosting and other ongoing costs. If you have enjoyed listening to this story and the other episodes I've put up over the past six to seven months, I would like to invite you to consider becoming a Patreon to help me produce more of what you enjoy. As well as helping me out to do this work, Patreons get exclusive content, usually in the form of stories, either Kindle versions or more often as uh, MP3 audio stories that are not available for free elsewhere. There are three tiers. The smallest one is the $1 a month. That's the ghouls. And I've introduced my vampire tier, which is uh, the generous amount of $20 a month. And for that, I will actually read a story for you, either one of mine dedicated to you, or read a story of your choice dedicated in the podcast to you yourself. So if you did feel that you could become a Patreon and support the podcast with a pledge on an ongoing basis, you would earn my undying gratitude and help me to keep on going. So thank you very much in advance for those who are going to sign up. Thanks in my heart to all of you who continue to support me. It really does mean a lot. Thank you.
Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody dies, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer today, didn't you? You tried. How do the dead come back, Mother? What's the secret? 